Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. It's good to be uh, to be with you and to be with you here uh, in this place. This is the first time I've had a chance to be back at uh, Franklin, so I'm. Uh, it's kind of a home homecoming in a way. It's fun. Thank you. Um, good to be had. Um, all right, so uh, we have been in the last three weeks. Uh, First of all, <laughs> reminded at how important it is that the church embrace the gift of women as preachers uh, and uh, uh, to celebrate the gifts that uh, Amy and Amanda brought. And Darren didn't do too bad either in the, in the middle there. I've uh, been listening, uh, and it, it occurred to me, uh, Darren and I were talking about this um, in some other contexts, to think through it, why it might be helpful for us to ask the question, why was Jesus so rabid on the one another's? Why is it so important in the New Testament, 59 times over and over again, honor one another, love one another, care for one another, forgive one another, all, all, all rolling out. 
And we thought it might be helpful uh, in the light of the last year and a half to consider the roots of our othering to which all of the one another's are the solution. In other words, where, where does it come from that we think it's okay for us to other people and why isn't that going to be sustainable going forward uh, for the church, for the world? I mean, uh, I, it, it's a target-rich environment these days, isn't it? Just throw a dart and we get case after case after case of how this is unsustainable. The center has failed. We don't trust anybody anymore. And when the center fails, it shouldn't surprise us that the edges start to disintegrate. And that's what we're seeing. And sadly, the people of God who ought to be the most focused on maintaining center and trust have not only contributed to the crazy, have led the way in some ways. That is heartbreaking, especially when we consider what God designed us for in the beginning and why it's important that we seek to maintain that. So I'm going to try in the next uh, little while to kind of give you a, a kind of a, a 10,000 foot flyover of an Old Testament theology that focuses on the roots of others, uh, the roots of othering. Uh, we have looked at many of these passages before, uh, and I uh, kind of apologize that we're going to go back to that old territory again, but not really. I'm kind of sorry, not sorry, in, in the sense that I, I, I think it's important that we kind of regularly go back and remind ourselves of, of where we came from and why it's important for us to keep the candle of home burning bright. Because there is always a way home from wherever you are. But if you don't know where you are, or if you're not actually there, you can't get home. Because God will only meet you where you actually are. And so it's with that in mind, uh, especially in the light of, of it just here we are in the down, downstream of November 11th. A day set aside to honor those who have given their lives, who have sacrificed in serving in the armed forces. But it's a graphic reminder of what happens if we continue to other. Because James says, why do you go to war? Well, duh, it's because you want stuff and can't have it. And Jesus, James's older brother, tells us exactly the same thing, Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and so on and so forth. So we want to play around with this a little bit, that what are the roots of our othering, whether it surfaces in racisms, whether it surfaces in genderism or ageism or any other form of tribal identity, where we find our home more fully expressed in things that divide us, than in what actually unites us. First, we begin in Genesis chapter 1. This is where we started and where, by the way, I want you to be reminded we're going to end up because God is about reconciling, restoring, redeeming 
So all of those re-words get us back to the manufacturer's default. That's where this is all going. And next week we'll talk about the radical reset that Jesus invites us into on the way back home. But begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they can rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There's a whole lot in there. Always we can come back and just get lost in this text, but the thing that I want you to notice today is that persons are not given dominion over other persons. We are built for collaborative, cooperative, relational community with nobody in charge except in the moment, the one who is gifted for that task, who is no more important, no better than anybody else. Do do you see what the strategy is? Because we have a God to whom we are connected through his life force of love, all of the pieces of the universe, including the inanimate objects, the sun, the moon, and the stars, to say nothing of the animate parts of the creation, the animals, and so on. And so all of those are woven into a beautiful tapestry of wonder that vibrates with the very love of God. And as soon as we start to dominate one another, we get out of sync with what we've been created to be. So it's important for us to understand. I get excited about this. I got to calm down because it's a long sermon. So we, we are not built for dominance. We are not built for hierarchy. We are not built for one group to exercise power over another, not men over women, not one race over another race, not one gender over another gender, not one age over. That's why I love what's happening in our children's ministry is the Holy Spirit begins to empower our kids and they are starting to lead us appropriately. Do do you follow what I'm saying here? And it's critical that we realize this is, this is woven into the fabric of what it means to be human. This is what we're built for. We're first oriented to God, then we are oriented to one another, and of course the love of self is the bridge between love of God and love of others. Then we pick up uh, Genesis chapter two, verse 18, uh, and the Lord said, it's not good. It doesn't work. It's non-functional for the man to be alone, so I will make him And I'm going to do the translation on this. Please bear with me. The Hebrew word here is etzer. Uh, It's a word that is used 20 times in the Old Testament. Uh, Two of them here. Uh, 18 times in the rest of the Old Testament. In all but one of those 18 times, etzer refers to God. So whatever else helper means, it's not an assistant. It's not a prop. It's not a supplement. It's not an afterthought. I, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a being who will be to him as I am to him. 
enabling him to exist. The outcome of that is a woman. I hope you heard the connection. I will make him a being who will be to him as I am to him, enabling his very existence, who is the same as him, but not like him. That's the design specification. So, verse 19, the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to the livestock, to the birds in the sky, to all the wild animals. But for the man, there was not found a helper who was suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's sides, translated ribs only in this passage, side everywhere else that word appears in the Old Testament. God removed one of the sides of the man, closed up the flesh at that point, created a woman from the side which he had removed, and brought her to the man. And he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. The Hebrew here is ish shah, because she is taken out of man. The Hebrew is ish. You can hear the, the similarities, but also the differences. So here's, here's the point. We can't be ourselves undifferentiated from others. It's not good for the man to be alone. Let's be reminded, where was she the entire time? She was part of that creation. And God says, this doesn't work. So he first differentiates, forms two whole beings, each of which need the other to function as human. It doesn't work for the man to be alone. So I will make a being who will be to him as I am to him, enabling him to exist, who is like him, but who is not like him. Can you think of a better description between women and men? <laughs> like him, but not like him. Do, do, do you see what he's after here? Genius, just brilliant poetry in this passage of scripture. But please notice the first attempt, and it's playful because this fills into the category of those stories that help us know who we are, is God tries animals on for size. And the outcome is at the end of the day, there's not found for the man a being who is suitable for him. What is it that disqualifies the animals from suitability? He names them. And by naming them, exercises authority over them. You see where I'm going. Second time in two chapters, God is saying, if you can exercise authority over a person, you fail in your humanity towards that person. You cease to be human to the degree to which you exercise authority over another person. You not only diminish their personhood by staying in the role of God over them, you diminish your personhood because, bro, that's not your job description. <laughs> do, do, you, do you see what he's doing here? So the solution is to take the guy, divide him in half. So now we have two equal parts, each of which need the other in order to be one. So then it goes on and says, 
This is why a man leaves his father and his mother united to his wife that they might become one flesh. Differentiation all along the line is critical. It is critical as you parent your children that you parent them to leave home. You, that's the reason you have kids, right, is to get rid of them. You want them within 15, 16, 17, 18 years to be able to function without you so that their primary orientation to you is not mom, dad, son, daughter, but person to person. Do you see where we're going? Because if your familial role exercises authority over your children's role, sooner or later, their humanity and yours will be compromised. Jesus is going to go after this with hammer and tongs next week, so you might not want to come. So then he goes on and he says that differentiation from, uh, from families of origin and from each other is what enables, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Nakedness here is not a description only of their physical reality. It is a description of their soul's exposure to one another. They were fully known and there was no shame in being known or knowing. That's where, that's what we are built for. Relationships of intimacy, knowing and being known, in which shame is not part of the equation. It lasted one verse. Chapter three. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took from it and ate and gave to her husband who was with her her and he ate and only when he ate were the eyes of both of them open and they realized that they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together made loin coverings for themselves the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden the Lord God called to the man where are you he answered, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of the, that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me from the fruit, and I ate. So please notice what's going on here. Move very quickly through this. We are not built, second time, chapter two, for dominance over one another. We are built for mutuality of empowerment that enables us to be human, anything less, and we begin to fritter away our humanity, right? So here we are, right in the very next chapter, they come out of chapter two, intimate. They come out of chapter two, known, without shame. They come out of chapter two, one, 
And the strategy of the enemy is to test whether they have a grip on their identity. As it turns out, there is a single strand connecting them to their identity. Obedience to God in this protective restriction. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not ready for it yet. Well, I think I am. And the serpent told me that if I did, then I would be like God. And clearly then that suggests that God is a little anxious about me gaining knowledge that he has because now it'll make me at some level equal with him. Can I just suggest that God is never anxious about you acquiring power unless you choose to use it against other people? Then he gets ticked. Okay, we'll look at that story a little bit later on. The outcome, we sever that cord that enables us to be human because we need dependence on God to enable our humanity, yeah? We sever that cord and we become like the kite with the cord cut, trash blowing in the wind. And what happens? We recognize we're naked, we're ashamed, and we start to hide from one another So we lose the intimacy with another person that enables us to be human. Then we hear God walking in the garden and we're afraid. And we hide from God. So we hide from each other first. We hide from God second. And then when God asks us about it, we throw somebody else under the bus. We blame and in blaming, we hide from ourselves. Because blame is always self-deflective. Blame is always an unwillingness or an inability to accept responsibility for my own life choices that have ended me in the ditch of my own life. If I can find somebody else to pin the tail of the donkey onto, then I don't have to take responsibility for it. Here's the problem. Even if you blame somebody else, you're still to blame. (laughs) Do you see? But now you're not even dealing with reality anymore. You can get home from wherever you are, but you got to be where you are. And if you're blaming, guess where you're not? You're not where you are. You're living in a false reality. There's no way home from there. God will not, cannot empower false reality. And so the struggle here, this this blame anchored in fear and shame, self-protective, self-defensive, is doomed to fail. By the way, it's, it's an indicator, the degree to which and the ease with which I am offended and lash out is the degree to which I'm working out of fear and insecurity more than I am out of love. And whether the lashing out is because I've been accused of something rightly or wrongly, The issue is not whether I deserve the accusation or not. It's how I respond to it. Life is not what happens to you. Life is how you respond to what happens to you. Does that make sense? And so we're invited into this, into, this, into this no blame zone that is anchored deeply in the love of God for us. This is next week because this is where we chose to live instead of there. What were we thinking? Mm, probably not much. And the outcome is very clear because now all of a sudden this delicate dance of mutual empowerment coming out of oneness and intimacy starts to tip sideways. 
And by verse 20, we get this pregnant line. The man named his wife Eve. And just like chapter 2, naming is about domination. Chapter 3, we are now completely sideways with a hierarchical system where God built. This, we have chosen this. Do, Do you see how this is going to work out? And, 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 and the outcome of that is we start to weaponize difference. Because Genesis 1 and 2, we need the differences. We need other people in order to be who God has called us to be. Yes? We need to not just, not just notice the differences, but applaud them and support them and invite them into the reality of our own souls. I need you because I've got this huge gaping hole in my soul that you fit into. And if you were the same as me, same but different. Do you see? And and you can extrapolate that. You can expand that out to the entirety of the human race. We need other persons in order to be ourselves. And we need other persons who are fully themselves with whom we can be fully ourselves and work in mutual submission to enable shared journey. Uh, But instead, we weaponized difference and became junior hires. We became middle schoolers. Because what's middle school about? As you begin to move from concrete thinking to abstract thinking, you start to notice the differences, right? And you you start to weaponize the differences, skin tone, height, weight, Talents of one kind or another, athleticism, musicianship, whatever it is, we start to grab a hold of our precious little identities and, and stick them on with duct tape and glue and fingers crossed, hope to God they don't fall off in the middle of the battle. And we are trying to live our lives like that. We're not built for that. We're not good at it. We just suck at not being human. So what's the way home? Next week. Next week. Spoiler alert, it'll kill you. Because all of that false self has to die. That's why Jesus invited you to BYOC. Bring your own cross. Because you got to die to everything that is not you so that what is finally, authentically, fully you can show up for work as part of the image of God. So our othering in fear and shame has resulted in a loss of our own humanity. We don't know who we are, and we thus can't know who anyone else is either. We are stuck And all of our othering comes from that fear and shame. Willful and acquired ignorance married to arrogance does not produce the kingdom. A couple of case studies very quickly because I want you to see how this flows out. Next chapter, chapter 2, or 4 rather, verse 2. Abel kept flocks, Cain worked the soil, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel brought some of the offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked 
with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to possess you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. One generation, one generation of shame and fear. And this is the outcome. The Lord said, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, if you're not, dude, who is? The Lord's response, you can hear the heartbreak. What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You're under a curse now. Consequential outcomes driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it won't yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me. Well, you should have thought of that sooner. Except, brothers and sisters, it's not you. It's me. It's me. I always think I'm going to game the system. I always think I'm going to get away with murder. Don't you? Remember, you can't get home from here unless you're here don't you you see Mm. 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 today you're driving me from the land I will be hidden from your presence and I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me Oh, you see, I'm unanchored, I don't have a place, I don't have a people, and clearly those people are the same as me, because what have I done to the one who tipped me sideways? They're going to do the same to me. You see how fear and blame starts to project itself on the differences of others? and believes about them what it can't help but believe about itself. And God says, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod. So here's what we do. We look for external symbols, style of dress, skin tone, socioeconomic status, the car people drive, what kind of sneakers they have, at least in the 80s. I mean, these are causes for murder-making difference. 
whether it's actual slaying of another or the diminishment of them in the hearing of their friends, because Jesus is clear on this in Matthew 5, these external symbols and, and difference now becomes recognized and seen as deviation, as difficult, and we say, well, it's only human to behave this way to people who are different than you. We have this evolutionary capacity to self-protect. Can I suggest to you, on the basis of Genesis 1 and 2, the way we are behaving is not human. It is not human. It is subhuman. We are not evolving. We are devolving. Look at the last two years, brothers and sisters. We are losing our sense of self because we have lost the sense of the beauty of the other. Look at what happens. Seven generations later, verse 23 of the same chapter, Lamech, Cain's great, 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 great grandson. Ada and Zillah, his wives, listen to me. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech 77 times. That's what happens when revenge is your response to difference. That's what happens when you choose to strike back, measured, of course, in an appropriate way to the wound you have received. You become Lamech. You wound a man. You kill a man for wounding you. You crush somebody. Can, I mean, this, is, this, is, this explains much of our social media feed these days, our cancel culture. Is that, is that fair to say? And, 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 and this, is, this is what happens when, when difference is weaponized. It escalates because that's the inevitability of the revenge cycle. And here's what becomes even more problem. It becomes systematized. Look at verse uh, um, uh, uh, one of chapter 11. The whole world had one language, a common speech. People moved eastward. They found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come. Let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly so they use brick instead of stone and then tar for mortar and said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Hmm. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city. And the tower the people were building, and the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they won't understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. God is not threatened by the tower they are building. That's not what this is about. What he's concerned about is this group of localized people who have found a way to spiritualize their political and military power, to systematize their 
othering of others. This is about the coagulation of power using the symbol of the building with its connection to God. There is no power more damaging than political, military power with a veneer of spirituality. And that's what he's concerned about. That's what, he's con- that's what the Tower of Babel is about. God is not threatened. You think you can build a tower to the heavens and knock on God's door and he doesn't know that you're there? <laughs> Come on. That's not what this story is about. It is about a group of people who decided that we will dominate the rest of our neighbors. We will systematize our positional power and use it to secure a place for ourselves. And God says, oh, this isn't going to turn out well. Not just for them, but particularly for everybody else who feels the weight of their systematized evil. And so he confuses the language. Unfortunately, we have still found ways to be systemically othering. Gender, race, even attraction becomes a way of othering people so that we don't have to deal with them as persons. I wish I could leave you up. Come next week. It does get better. But I think you can understand why it's important. I hope, it, I hope you can understand why it's important for us to look at the roots of our racisms, at the roots of our genderisms, at the roots of the ways that we use, throw a dart, political differences for crying out loud, and use them to pull us apart. We are undeniably interconnected, brothers and sisters. So when we, when we reduce others, we reduce ourselves, and it is a toxic spiral down from there. It begins innocently enough. We're afraid. I get it. I get it. Really, I do. We're ashamed. Boy, do I get that one. But the outcome... We become even less human. And this is not first a sociological problem, yielding of sociological solutions. This isn't a cultural. The culture is the manifestation of a deep and profound spiritual brokenness that can only be found because all of our attempts otherwise become adventures in missing the point. So what do we do? Would you bow your heads with me for a few minutes? I've run over time. Thanks for your patience, which I'm assuming. Um, But I'm going to invite you just to ask Jesus to open your eyes to your own fears and what those fears have produced in you. The relationships that you have othered, the friendships, the people, the whole people groups that you have, have othered in response to maybe real harm done to you, real damage done with the excuse it's only human to self-protect. Perhaps this morning the Spirit will say to you, actually, that's not human. That is what has led 
to your loss of humanity. We want the differences. We want to celebrate the differences. But if we have weaponized them, there's no way home from there unless we repent. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. Spirit